1: Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. It's
2: been a big news week for many reasons, but of course, the most important reason the story on everyone's lips talk of the water cooler is that in celebration of Eurovision, the cheesiest event in the world, flat-sharing site Spare Room launched a unique pizza topped with 41 different cheeses, sourced from the 41 nations competing in this year's song contest. The ultimate homage to fromage was available for free from Baz and Fred's in Southwark, London, on the day of the competition. Why was it available
1: for free? It must be quite expensive to make. I did think that. I did think that was not a particularly... I couldn't even name 41 different types of cheese. Neither could I. Don't try right now. (laughs) All that fromage for a deeply disappointing result because the UK came last again, which is deeply unfair considering that Slovenia sung the creepiest, slowest sort of death lullaby I've ever seen in my life. I did actually watch it this year. Not live, I hasten to add, because I was out, because I'm a cool mum. But (laughs) all four hours of it on Sunday morning with Zadie. (laughs) Oh,
2: I should have watched it because do you know what? I didn't realise it was Eurovision, which is my favourite cultural moment of the year. Cultural moment. Until uh, I was listening to Graham Norton's Saturday breakfast show on Radio 2, which is the best way to start the weekend. And he was talking about Eurovision and I very, very nearly rang my friends and cancelled my night out.
1: Well, Graham Norton was on excellent form. He introduced the uh, model bar Raffaele as the ex-model Raffaele, who he then just took a sort of mysterious dislike to for the rest of the show, at one point questioning the absence of her personality. (laughs) (laughs) So harsh. Also this week, Taiwan legalised gay marriage, the first state in Asia to do so. And Grumpy Cat has died age seven. The death of the Arizonian internet cat with feline dwarfism, whose permanent frown made her owners millions of dollars, died from a urinary tract infection, and the Moggy's passing made front cover stories on both broadsheet and tabloids. I got a breaking news alert on my phone (laughs) when it (laughs) happened.
2: My favourite story of this week is that the love of my life, Rod Stewart, has... Pledged £10,000 to a British model railway club which was attacked by vandals at the weekend. He said he was devastated to hear about the Market Deeping Railway Club's exhibition being trashed by vandals and wanted to compensate those affected. Sir Rod is utterly obsessed with model railways. He has a whole room in his house dedicated to them and has spent 23 years building it. He has, what? yeah, he has an entire chapter in his biography. The best book ever published, dedicated to it, in which he says he gets very, very angry when people infantilise him by calling them train sets. (laughs) So they have to be called model railways. Oh, right. Anyway, I just thought it was a lovely story and another example of why he is uh, my favourite musician and man on earth. And I'm also very much looking forward to seeing him live at York race courses in a couple of weeks because India and I got a little bit drunk and booked some tickets to see it which we forgot about until we were reminded by email a few days later.
1: York racecourse you bought have you bought your fascinator from phoenix? No it's not it's not a part of the races. He's just he's just doing a show there. You're in India at the GG's.
2: I keep flagging it up though. Like every, whenever I'm interviewed at the moment I keep flagging it up because I'm hoping that maybe people his people might be listening and there might be a bit of a I don't know. These people might be listening. Well, I spoke about it on uh, when I went on Steve Wright in the afternoon a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the head of the Rod Stewart online official fan club emailed my agent and... Uh, asked if I'd like to give a few words for the website which was nice but I was hoping for a little bit more so if Rod Stewart's manager is listening yes I will come backstage and yes I will let him dedicate Maggie Mae to me okay
1: that's the ever lofty dolly office for you
2: <laughs> in more heartwarming news an 81 year old woman has met her mother for the first time after a six decade search brought up in an orphanage in Dublin Eileen McKen started looking for her mother age 19 Last year, she appealed for help from Irish radio and in August, a genealogist called to tell her her mother was alive and living in Glasgow. Last month, she visited 104-year-old Elizabeth and said she wasn't quite sure if her mother fully understood their connection, but also said she never let go of my hand.
1: Also this week, Nigel Farage had a milkshake thrown over him and then pronounced that the attempt to cover him in milkshake whilst he stood covered in milkshake was a failure. (laughs) And the Jeremy Carl show is axed once and for all, although there is a change.org petition to bring it back, which has already garnered over 35,000 signatures.
2: I guarantee that 90% students.
1: (laughs) Dolly, I discovered an Instagram account this week that you are going to love. It's called At 90s Anxiety, and it has pictures of Hollywood stars during the golden grunge era, my favourite year of dress. I'm still inspired by that on a daily basis. Um, Loads of pictures I've never seen before. Think Cameron Diaz in black Doc Martens, thick white sports socks, golden tan and a black cotton tank dress sitting on the beach at Cannes like she's sort of at West Wittering. It's absolutely <laughs> magical. I've got that picture of Cameron Diaz saved on my laptop because I just love the outfit so much. Oh, you'll love the account then. It's, I'll follow it. And loads of couples that you forget whatever couples as well, which as you know is my favourite thing to with Google that. image. yeah. Yeah, especially the ones from the 90s because I don't really remember the past lives of Winona Ryder or Gwyneth Paltrow, so it's a gem what's in the mailbag this week doll we had a number of emails in response to
2: last week's author special with brianie gordon including lots of messages from teenage girls who said the discussion made them feel better in themselves one listener wrote us the following message a couple of hours before doing one of her gcse exams i've just finished listening to the end of your recent episode with brianie gordon with my greek gcse in an hour i don't envy you that I had been in the library this morning, but feeling on the point of meltdown, I had to retreat to my room and just lie blinds closed in the dark on my bed to calm myself down with an alarm set for 20 minutes. I was listening to you talking about GCSEs, and it made me feel so much better that I decided to jump out of bed and do 10 star jumps to wake myself up, ready oh. for the exam. GCSEs are a very stressful time, but I think if everyone just listened to the last 10 minutes of this episode, they would feel much better.
1: Dolly, do you ever just get out of bed and do 10 star jumps to uh, prepare you for the high
2: No, but... I'm the worst for it, I think.
1: (laughs) Um, That was such a sweet message. I'm so
2: glad that we were in your ears right before your GCSE, and I hope it went well. Another listener shared some really interesting insights into what it's like to be a young adult today. I think that the ideals we are brought up with and the emphasis on how good education will guarantee you a swift rise up the pay ladder means that I was disillusioned as a young adult. The feeling of failure that I'm not where I should be, coupled with what seems the common mid-twenties self-doubt and crisis, is sometimes hard to deal with. There is a pressure to be in a super creative, flexible, modern career, often running your own business or working for yourself. But the reality is that the majority of people have traditional jobs. I sometimes feel awkward to say that I really enjoy my office-based 9-to-5 job and feel that modern media doesn't always represent or encourage the normal people like me. I don't think we should be shamed into not saying how much enjoyment and fulfilment we get out of the normal things in life and that our choices, no matter how boring, are always valid.
1: Thank you for that letter. I'm really glad you sent that me in. too. And I understand what you're saying. There is a lot of emphasis on having a sort of creative multi-hyphenate career. I mean, Dolly and I are very much included in that bracket but there is nothing wrong with liking the strict barriers both yeah. kind of physical and logistical of an office-based job and, and, and that's great
2: and, that both, you enjoy and both take equal amounts of hard work diligence skill creativity you know I, t- I totally agree with you and I do think it's something when I read that email I hadn't thought of that before because I think perhaps I'm guilty um, publicly of fetishizing the sort of patchwork career that I've had um but as well as kind of talking about the benefits of having a career like that i think we shouldn't forget that as you say those more traditional jobs are completely satisfying for many 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 as she said the majority of people i think
1: i'm increasingly going back the other way to having a nine to five job at my desk Mm. trying to leave my house as little as possible yeah
2: (laughs) what have you been enjoying this week doll I adored reading an absolutely beautiful and gorgeously descriptive homage to Doris Day in the New Yorker (laughs) by Anthony Lane about her appeal to the masses, her vocal style and her film back catalogue and her kind of career choices. The payoff is particularly poetic and you can tell that the writer truly adores and understands her as an artist. But this section is the section that I wanted to read. To an extent, her success was due to physiognomy. Plenty of people have music in their soul. Doris Day had music in her face. So often and so instinctively did she break into a smile that her lips were already parted. It somehow seemed easier to carry on, open wide and unleash a tune than to shut down and clam up. The song began where the smile left off. You sigh, the song begins, you speak and I hear violins, it's magic. That's her big number from Romance on the High Seas, and it doesn't take her long, two words, two syllables, one note, to vent that famous vibrato. It's more of a throb than a sob, and it instantly distinguishes Day from Judy Garland, who can stretch her vowels into a quivering so dense with need and regret that it's often hard to bear. Day is made of toughest stuff, determined not to to surrender or to crumple, and reluctant to expose her heart in its entirety. Some of it should always be kept back and there's no shame and plenty of solid sense in holding out for the bright side. Those are good vibrations. I love that. It's so beautifully written. Doris
1: Day had music in her face. I know.
2: And and it's like, I don't know how he managed to, with so many people talking about the appeal of Doris Day and the very unique song. Yeah, and... And also I love Judy Garland as well, so I love that description of how that vibrato and that fragility in, in, and pain in Judy Garland's voice is almost unbearable in a way that their kind of soaring of Doris Day's isn't. Um, it's just an absolute masterclass in... Um, mm. Des- description and observation i think so yeah it was beautiful and i loved it i also loved an episode of fresh air last week in which terry gross played an archive interview from years ago where she rang doris day and interviewed her on the eve of doris day's 80th birthday i think <laughs> it's a really special conversation for a number of reasons doris day famously retreated from the public eye when she was approaching middle age she kind of abandoned the entertainment industry and she went to go live somewhere very rural and rescue and rehome dogs and cats and then she never gave interviews after that and hearing her voice in the interview is kind of amazing because it's so much lower than the bright Isabel voice that that we remember from uh her films and her music but terry says at the begin- beginning she says oh you still sound exactly like doris day and doris day is like well that's good huh <laughs> um, and it's it's just a lovely interview and it's Yet another example of why Terry Gross, I think, is probably the most deft interviewer this world has known. She's so gentle and thoughtful with her subject, particularly reverent in this case, as she's aware of what a privilege it is to be speaking um, with this like cultural towering figure. But also, she doesn't shy away from asking searching questions or asking very straightforward questions in very odd conversational terrain. So, like, Doris Day doesn't seem to find it weird that she has 30 dogs. <laughs> and Terry Gross like, won't quite let go of, like, but why 30? And it's so funny because she just... Doris Day keeps coming back by saying, well, you know, I've got a lot of rooms. I've got, there are a lot of rooms. And it's like a lot of people have big
1: houses.
2: <laughs> so it's just, uh, yeah, I she just like love to ground her. Yeah, and I just love Terry Gross and... I was talking about... To, about this. Is she
1: right as well? Because I wasn't
2: familiar with Terry Grace before Fresh Air. So, no, but she's... Um, actually, a really good interview with her, although it's really annoying because it's Mark Maron, so he keeps interrupting her and trying to be funny. But in terms of hearing about her past, is she did a live WTF with Mark Maron, and she's had a really fascinating uh, past. And she has... And her talking about how she got into radio, but she actually, I think, has... More of a legacy and longevity and history with her interviewing than Kirsty Young, but she's like treasured and celebrated in the same way like a Desert Island Discs presenter is oh, wow. treasured and celebrated. Oh, and Laura Snapes is a massive fan of Terry Gross, and she was telling me that there's a brilliant book called All I Did Was Ask by Terry Gross: Conversations with Writers, Actors, Musicians, and Artists, and it's um, transcripts of her. Uh, oral interviews and laura said her interview style becomes more apparent and takes on more significance when you see it uh in print have you bought that book yet that's got
1: your name yeah no I'm i've ordered it Over,
2: have uh, i really I want to, to buy it. get stuck into the whole terry gross world and archive apparently there's also a great tell me
1: when you do and i will as well and then we can okay great it. yeah let's
2: do it there's there's also apparently um a great like automated because terry gross asks Really good questions, and there's a really great automated like jokey thing on Google that's like automated Terry Gross (laughs) questions. It just throws up all these brilliant questions. Always recommend Fresh Air. It's the it's the podcast that I think I go to most regularly. Mm -hmm. So do get into Fresh Air if you haven't already. I love Dead to Me, (laughs) which Pandora recommended to me on Sunday when I was a little bit weary. Having danced until 5am on Saturday night to a selection of Motown hits. I am so grateful for the recommendation, Panda, as it was not only great hangover viewing, it was just Utterly compelling drama. Well, we
1: should thank India Knight, because I got it from right, okay. her recommendation in her Sunday Times column this week. She said it was like Desperate Housewives. It really is like Desperate Housewives. Yeah, oh,
2: I think it's better. Because they've all got giant houses. I know, I love the giant houses. I've got one episode left of it. <laughs> Me and too!
1: Itching to get home I can't have one left, though. I want like 40 more. I know,
2: I know. It went too fast. It stars Christina Applegate, who is so, so good in it. Yeah. And I think may have even become a better actor with age. And I also just love these quite unexpected casting choices that Netflix and Amazon often make, those shows. And it's about a woman who is widowed and left with two sons when her husband is killed in a hit-and-run car accident. She befriends another widow at a grief support group, and the series follows both the complications of their friendship and the mysteries of her husband's death and whether all is as it seems. I like a drama, and I love the pace of it and the addictive nature of the narrative. But I often find myself wanting more texture and character detail. But what has impressed me so much with this show is that the plot twists are so creative. The characters are so funny. It's plot-driven, but it's also really character-driven as well. And I think that's quite hard to find in um, a successful drama. And the reveals are just so real all of it feels so real none of it feels you can't feel the hand of the writer in it at all i don't feel and
1: even though it deals with a fairly privileged set of people in orange county i think it um is quite careful to cover you know, people from different backgrounds and also lots of contemporary issues mm. um, like repeated miscarriage or infertility mm. or the kind of stigma of um, not being a homeowner or even having your own home at a certain age. Mm. Um, I, it's really clever. It's yeah. really, really well done. I'm so glad you're enjoying it. Okay, well. I look
2: forward to our WhatsApp <laughs> conference this evening after we've both watched it. I also went back and re-listened to one of my favourite podcast episodes of all time with Jemima Kirk, who is incidentally my number one crush, and uh, her best friend Lena Dunham. And it's it's from a few years ago, and it's from Lena Dunham's old podcast series that she did called Woman of the Hour. And Does she not do
1: any of her media stuff anymore?
2: She's about to start a new podcast series on Luminary called The C Word, which is about uh, how we have perceived and treated women we deem to be crazy through history, which I'm very much looking forward to listening to. Uh, but this one was a, a mini episode about friendship. And it's Jemima Kirk and Lena Dunham on driving on the way back from a weekend together. And it's them talking about the history of their friendship and the power dynamics of their friendship and what it was like to go from being friends to working together. And I think I just love women being honest about all these complications of of female relationships, such as, you know, rivalry and jealousy and feeling left behind in competition. I just think it's so important to talk about this stuff because, you know, female friendship is, is like a much darker and messier and complicated thing than just being like, girl crush sisterhood forever and uh I think that that's like all a part of the experience and you know it's very pertinent to me as well because I work with you I work with another one of my best friends as well Lauren and transferring from friendship to a working relationship does have its challenges it's incredible but it's difficult as well and I love listening to w- like really close female friends who work together be honest about that and this conversation is ruthlessly truthful. And, I, and I'm interested in the fact that they talk at length about the fact that at school, Jemima Kirk was like apparently the coolest girl in the, that the school had ever seen. Apparently when Lena Dunham would go around to her house, like Moby would be there <laughs> eating a pizza and she was clubbing when she was 14 years old. And she just so vividly conjured up this girl that I think all of us knew when we were younger. Maybe not with those uh, exact same... Uh, cultural references but those girls that yield power and she and Lena Dunham says you know my version of our story is that when I met you I was completely besotted with you and I ran around doing everything that you wanted me to do and Jemima Kirk has said yes well that was kind of my mo when I was a teenager is that I wanted to find sort of weak people who I could just control and then when Lena Dunham went to university and then became this, like, incredibly young... The auteur, auteur. yeah. And it's such an interesting chat where Jemima then became Lena's muse and Lena became Jemima's boss. And Jemima said, I felt like you were making me into a caricature on girls because you were trying to exert authority over me because you had resentment of so many years that I was the more powerful one.
1: And did Lena say she had? Um... I think she said yeah
2: like a little bit it's so interesting I'm amazed that this conversation is so hidden in the kind of podcast store um, because you have to really go and find it and it's just two very very self-aware people in terms of in relation to their emotions to each other in this specific conversation so yeah, I loved it, and I actually wanted to insert a clip here because it reminded me a bit of me and you, Panda. Because at the end, uh, Lena says, "I think we should end by lovingly saying the th- most annoying qualities about <laughs> each other." And Jemima says one about Lena, which you regularly have said about me.
0: Um, another annoying thing about you,
1: oh, you check out in your head when sometimes we're in conversations. Not necessarily to me. Like it's not it's not annoying. It's just interesting because you do it when you, you're talking. It can be annoying. I saw you do it on the Ellen show. You did
2: see me. You saw me stare into the abyss on the Ellen. I was watching Ellen. I was like, she's gone. She's gone. Lights are on. No one's home. (laughs) And I pointed it out. And my husband was like, yeah, 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 totally. I also did a massive WTF catch up because I haven't listened to it for a while and he's had some great guests on in the last couple of weeks
1: including angelica houston which just... is that amazing interview with vulture yeah if you haven't read it yet googled it it's like the ultimate celebrity interview it's um there's some like quite problematic yeah, yeah, yeah things in it but she's also very funny about how her and ryan o'neill snogged for like six hours on a snooker table or something and the interview is like how did you kiss for that long and she's like i was i was young my back was like liquid amber
2: She's so funny. And she's like, as you say, refreshingly candid. And actually in terms of the very, very problematic things that she said within that interview, for me, it was, and it was basically her saying it was a bit of a boys will be boys. It was a different time in terms of excusing um, sexually bullying or abusive behavior. And for me, when I read it, I was obviously disappointed when she said that. But I just also thought, This is obviously a woman who's been traumatised by men over the years. Truly, that's what I felt. It's like, this is a woman for whom she's obviously been so objectified and had, I can't speculate, but I assume from what she's just reading between the lines of the interview that has had so many uncomfortable experiences that I think it's become normalised for her as a coping mechanism so I don't know I wouldn't be so quick to vilify her on that uh, even though as I said I do agree that the things she said was were problematic uh, but the one that the episode that I wanted to really flag to everyone is Brene Brown who uh, is an astonishingly inspiring uh, public speaker and social worker and she did a TED talk years ago which I talked about on the Hilo uh, because it's available to listen to as a series on Audible
1: called The Power of Vulnerability. That is cited, I feel like even Michelle Obama cited it in her speech, like how many yeah. times has it been listened to? It must be one of the most yeah. listened to pieces of audio
2: content. It's a It's a radical piece of thinking and it's about... The fear that we have around vulnerability, why we have a fear around vulnerability, where it stems from in childhood uh, and the link between vulnerability and shame. And, you know, as someone who this was a lot of work that I did in therapy, I am petrified of vulnerability, both in relationships, in my family life, in friendships, um, you know, health-wise, like I'm a person who hates even being sick, like, I, I fe- I, I'm I so fearful of being dependent on others. It was such a life-changing experience listening to this woman convince me of how vulnerability is bravery, and how it, when harnessed correctly and appropriately, it's the only route to feeling authentic, known, understood, and intimate with others. So, Yeah, she's an amazing woman. Do listen to that. And then the WTF episode is Mark Maron. I was really surprised he wanted to get her on because Mark Maron is like a pretty cynical guy and she is funny and has moments of being acerbic but is very sincere and and incredibly open-hearted. But he's completely obsessed with her and he says in the intro that he's tried to get her on before and that that the power of vulnerability was one of the most uh, important things that he's ever listened to. And it's interesting listening to their dynamic because normally with Mark Maron he's completely in charge of the show he's a very kind of slapdash with his questions you feel like the guests are very much there in his space but he is really keen to uh, impress Brene Brown and he offends her at a couple of points and she really snaps at him in a way that I've never heard a woman on his podcast do before like at one point she was like you're being really fucking rude that when he says that he thinks that she's a control freak. So it's just like really, uh, and I'm a big fan of Mark Marin, but I do sometimes find him quite abrasive. So it was really great to listen to this woman who just knows herself and knows her own boundaries really take control of that conversation. And the bit that I would like to insert here is when they're talking about shame and how we move through a world where quite rightly, and thank God, uh, we are taking people to task and reprimanding them on bad behavior in a public way, but how we do that while consciously removing shame from the methodology.
0: For me, I think shame is a tool of oppression, humiliation, berating are tools of hurt. They're not going to be tools of change and justice. I do not think shame is a social justice tool. And if you want to use it as a social justice tool, that's great. I'm not going to do. I'm not going to participate that in that with you because shame doesn't just change the person who is the target of the shame. Shame changes people who use it against other people. So if you want me to, hey, this this person did something really shitty, really bad, um, and let shame the shit out of them. Yeah. Don't include me. You want to hold that person accountable in a real way? I'm a, I'm I'm on board. But just FYI, that takes 10x the amount of time and work that shame does. You won't get the rush of feeling good by berating someone right away. Mm And it's a long process, but I will not participate in using shame as a social justice tool. It's the justice tool of oppression.
1: I like how you got really meta on that. You were looking at the kind of shifting dynamic between interviewer and interviewee in a sort of audio setting as much as you were actually yeah. looking at the content. You are the ultimate podcast enthusiast. <laughs> you, are, you are a podcast. I read Home Fire by Camilla Shamsie last week and i am completely blown away by it i'm not sure how it took me so long to become conscious of it it staggers me sometimes do you ever have this that i can still i can miss something that's been widely lauded you know hugely well read has won prizes yeah and it still sort of floats by yeah. my conscious so this one this book home Far, won women's prize for fiction last year that only really came to my attention, and I bought it last week after it was recommended to us by a lot of Hilo listeners off the back of our author special with Fatima Bhutto, whose book, The Runaways, is about teenagers who join ISIS. Home Fire deals with a similar storyline, but also not at all, because it's also a book about class and family and trauma the trauma of being orphaned and social identity and Politics, it is tremendously clever. It is a modern retelling of the Greek myth of Antigone. Antigone is the daughter of Oedipus and his mother Jocasta. Yes, note the Oedipal relationship there. And she is very close to her brother, and it's a relationship which is replicated in Anika and Parvaz in Homefire, except that Anika is an LSE student and Parvaz has run away to join the media unit of ISIS. I can't really do this book justice because it is so much more than that storyline. It's so acutely observed and beautifully written, and the ending is honestly the most heart in mouth cliffhanger I am desperate to know what other people think happened after this book like on the next page of it in, in a frustrating way or um, a... because I'm terrible at everything not being like tied up in a yeah. little, little bit the ambiguity yeah. is obviously part of the power I've googled it, I've implored people by tweets to come and discuss with me but <laughs> all people do is keep replying to me saying how amazing this book is and it's like their favourite book and they've read it 16 times, I agree it's fucking fantastic but I really need to talk you about what an would happen on the next page of an this book it was Mental Health Awareness Week last week Week, which is why we had Brani Gordon on to discuss mental health in teenage girls and women and which I totally forgot to flag last week but there was some excellent content from the BBC Louis Theroux on postnatal depression which I talked about last week Nadia Hussein on anxiety and the actor David Harewood on being sectioned into his 20s in a programme called Psychosis and Me oh I really want to watch that it was brilliant um, he dove into the specifics of his psychotic attack itself how it built you know how it came to be and why he looked at how identity played a role in his psychosis for him the contributing factors were being very successful almost as soon as he left rada but desperately lonely living in london without his family who lived in birmingham and being constantly defined as a black actor he said it's not something he'd thought of himself as before until he played othello um and everyone kept referring to it as you know the black Shakespeare play, or he was the black Othello, or and in all these ways that contributed to him feeling just erased. Erased and also just built to this idea of just feeling very alienated and very alone and I think confused by the way his life is playing out. He also discussed the connotations of the word psychosis. It implies someone who's crazy and scary and unstable he says. Most people prefer to say they had a breakdown. In one really moving scene he recreates the journey to the hospital where his two friends from RADA took him when it was clear he was in the middle of his psychotic episode. It's very emotional to watch. It's just it's lovely that these are two close friends 30 years later and when he's clearly very upset by it the way they just all gather together as men that have known each other for, you know, three decades Mm. and he just keeps saying fucking hell, this is fucking real fuck, fuck because he sort of has been retelling it you know, as an actor and then suddenly he's back where it sort of you know happened. Thanks to various doctors who were interviewed, we also learned some really interesting facts about psychosis. Um eighty percent of first episode psychosis happens before the age of twenty four and it's something that commonly develops during adolescence as it's a fertile field, the changing pubescent brain, experimenting with drugs and alcohol. I thought that was really interesting. I didn't realise how kind of youth orientated Psychotic episodes were. The form of psychosis, and I found this really interesting, is always the same, but people bring different content, one psychiatrist says. For example, religion used to be involved in a lot more delusions, mm. think of the exorcist, mm. but now we are a more secular society. A lot of it is now about social media. That's so interesting. And psychosis will affect one in 100 people. So it's a lot more common than I thought. A really interesting show and I thoroughly mm. recommend. And um, David Howard did a brilliant job with this because it's personal and it's social and it's mm. psychological and it's, um, it really deftly moves between kind of personal memoir mm. and culture and psychological stigma, I
0: think, as well.
2: The state of modern humanity's sense of connection and community has been the subject of conversation this week off the back of an unexpected source. Uber is offering its customers the option of a quiet ride via the app, which means the driver will not attempt conversation or small talk. It is currently only available to users of its luxury Uber Black services, costing the passenger extra. The news has divided both drivers and riders. Some have commented that this is an example of conscious, malicious class division or that it dehumanizes drivers. Others have said that the silence is easier for both driver and passenger to have clear boundaries and know what's required of both of them to be appropriate. Some women have said they feel safer being alone in an Uber if there is no conversation and I saw that some deaf Uber customers were tweeting that this makes life easier and more comfortable for them. It really seems to have divided people. What are your thoughts, Panda?
1: I don't know if I agree with the dehumanising bit, uh, which came from the mirror, instantly. as I do think in any service job, there are customers who want to chat and people who don't want to chat, whether you're a hairdresser or a cab driver, and I do think that's part and parcel of the job is navigating yeah. your customer. Yeah, I totally agree, and I think that even goes as far
2: as... In waitressing, or I worked in a shop for years, and I knew you had to, as part of the job, it was about gauging what was an appropriate level of interaction and what people
1: wanted. Yeah, I think they're consumer-facing mm. jobs. Um, what I do think that this new service would allow is a further erosion of our ability to be ad hoc communicators. That's what really worries me. So that if communication isn't planned in advance, like, hi, I'm going to call you at one thirty today, or written so that you can reply at your own leisure, then we just can't cope. And I think that we should be able to actually say and have to say, without flipping a little switch, Pitch. Sorry, I'm just working on something at the moment. Do you mind if we don't chat? Rather than being able to swipe an app and rest easy in the knowledge that you have avoided conversation with someone you don't know yet again. I'm in two minds about
2: it, which surprises me because normally I'm very oldie-woldie, let's despair about the break, <laughs> breakdown of conversation in community, as you know. Um, I use Uber quite a lot, which provides a lot of material for mockery from my friends. I said absolutely nothing. And uh, often when I use Uber, uber it's because i need to answer emails in between appointments so in the past there have been times where i found it frustrating to make conversation only because i don't want to appear rude but the whole reason i'm in a quiet car with signal is to get some work done i have to say that is very rare though as most uber drivers i get in a car with are either quiet listening to the radio or on the phone and i have to say i think it cuts both ways i'll always try and pick up on whether they want to chat or whether they would prefer to be left alone the other day i was in an uber and i said would you mind if i take a call one of my bosses is ringing me and he said that not was me by the way I'm one of bosses. <laughs> <laughs> and he said not at all would you mind if i took a call and i said yes go ahead and we both like sat very quietly having conversations on the phone throughout the journey which i felt was completely fair what i think feels uncomfortable or imbalanced, is the idea that the passenger is the one who gets to control the entire mood of the car and the journey. I've always felt that a cab journey is about both people respecting what sort of journey the other person wants. Personally, I think there should be an option for Uber drivers to select when they want a journey in quiet mode
1: I think that's very civil of you I think a lot of people will disagree I think they will say well I'm paying for this service therefore I get to dictate the mood um, no, I don't think I'd it, agree with that Yeah, I don't, well, I, well I don't think it's a particularly um, nice way to approach human behaviour but I do think it has become the default way mm. for us to think I'm paying for this therefore it's the idea you of do the customer always say. being right which yeah. is so problematic no I don't agree with that I think all too often we see Ubers not as taxi drivers but as their own entity and it's you know imagine if you said to a black cabbie can you stop pointing out the sights of london thanks and you know i think sometimes we think of them as like different sorts of people rather than what uber drivers yeah well they're also
2: within that lays some very uncomfortable racism i think
1: yeah that's really interesting they're totally uh, and definitely as well that there is an idea that one is elevated over another isn't it yeah. when I feel sick, which is very often unfortunately I find talking agonising so I try and do it with minimal lip interaction like I'm a ventriloquist <laughs> but I do think that we need to be careful not to seal ourselves into a sound controlled booth where the only conversation permitted is with people we know trust and agree with the famous cliche I always come back to, I've said it on the podcast before, I've written it before, I will say it and write it again, is that community is breaking down because we don't chat at bus stops anymore. We swipe instead. We are, as Eric Thomas put it in a piece for LUS, which made me laugh, aggressively antisocial. Mm. It's no longer passive, this reluctance to converse. It's actually aggressive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really feel that when I often when I
2: leave London and it's something I have to really smack my wrist about that whenever generally when I leave London and go to more rural communities I'm always astonished at how much uh how much just it's a part of moving through your day Mm -hmm. it's just conversation with sort of everyone and what astonishes me and and appalls me even more is how intolerant I am of it and I think that is that's something I'm really trying to push back against because I think that is first of all a symptom of of our times and a symptom of urban living but also the fact that I live alone and I don't want to be aggressively antisocial, I really really don't in relation to the this specific conversation about silence in Ubers I have to say I found some of the conversation around it to be quite patronising I saw a few people tweeting something along the lines of if we stop speaking to Uber drivers then Uber drivers might not have any human interaction in their entire day and I just felt like that's quite an offensive thing to say I'm pretty sure most Uber drivers have lives and friendships and families and also a lot of people work in jobs that isolate them or mean a working day with no chit chat I really don't think this is about a duty to maintain the contentment or mental health of uber drivers by talking about roadworks or the weather i think it's a larger question of politeness and community and connection
1: yeah it's very odd to other uber drivers who are entitled to their own internal lives and social lives i came close to writing a novella about uber drivers after a trip to (laughs) la three years ago when i got 25 Ubers in three days. Fuck me, that's like Marie Antoinette. Now, before you yell at me via our mailbag, I Uber pooled every single time at an average cost of $4 per journey. And I was there for work, which meant multiple meetings and interviews in places I had zero idea of how to get to. LA is vast and sprawling. I didn't have a car and the LA bus route is... Pretty appalling if you don't know where you're going. Most of the Uber drivers there actually just clocked on as an extra job. I had a few students, but my favourite was Darlene, who was usually a stay-at-home mum, but she Ubered in the evenings and drove almost exclusively on the (laughs) pavements. It was a wild ride. (laughs) On the whole, I really
2: worry about how little we communicate face to face now it's why i hate whatsapp and automated helplines and self-checkout counters which never work they never work you have to look at this model when there are 10 self-checkout counters and five staff walking up and down them helping people use them it's like this just has no logic (laughs) and also selfie sticks can you remember the last time that a couple or a group of friends or a family came up to you and said excuse me you take a photo of us, it just doesn't happen anymore. And it just feels like another excuse not, to have to, not to, to have to talk to people. And I really do worry that we are losing not only a desire to speak to each other, but an interest in learning about each other and curiosity. But I do think with taxis, whether Uber or a mini cab or a black cab, it's such a specific environment, particularly if you're a lone passenger. That is strangely intimate. Just you and a person you've never met in a car that the question of conversation really is more personal as it's not like you're just passing through somewhere or in a communal area. That's
1: a fair point. I think it, you're right. The intimacy means that it actually can feel more claustrophobic and yeah. so there needs to be a kind of added um, awareness of that
2: enforced whole. Totally. And as I say, I, I think it's a personal choice for both driver and passenger. Here's an example. I tried to make small talk on Saturday night with my cab driver, uh, And it was very, very clear that he didn't want to talk to a tipsy girl, giddy from a night out, so I shut up pretty quickly. And I think we need to think of the experience of a cab journey as being two people judging what's appropriate rather than just a passenger waltzing in and deciding what the atmosphere of the journey is going to be.
1: Did you do your good evening, good man? I would like to be taken to the borough of Camden, please, through this fair town with its twinkly lights. Shtick. And don't spare the
2: horses. No, I didn't, actually, though.
1: A bit of personal trivia to finish the
2: segment. When I wrote my dating column for the Sunday Times Style, I spent a journey from Tottenham Court Road to Highgate flirting with a very hot cab driver and uh, gave him
1: my number. Did he have a ring? No. <laughs> <laughs> Like many of you, I'm sure this week, all I have been talking about and thinking about is the new Alabama abortion ban. Last week, 25 white male Republicans voted in the most restrictive abortion law in the States. In addition to banning nearly all abortion, including pregnancies resulting from rape, or incest except in cases where the pregnancy poses a serious health risk to the mother doctors who perform the procedure can be convicted of a felony and jailed for life to clarify say you sought an abortion after being raped the doctor who performed your abortion would likely get a longer jail term between 10 and 99 years than your rapist Alabama is the first state in the states to ban abortion but and this is where it gets a little sticky whilst it is legal in all the other states via the landmark 1973 case of Roe v. Wade to procure an abortion other states have made it very difficult such as having only one abortion clinic in the entire state for example further reading on this is Spark of Light by Jodie Pickelt a piece of fiction based on the One Health Clinic that provides abortions in Mississippi uh, both Dolly and I really enjoyed that was mm. it last summer? I think we flagged it. Yeah or they have um, laws which ban abortions after six weeks, which is before a lot of women know they are pregnant. Georgia, Kentucky, Missouri, Mississippi and Ohio have all recently passed so-called heartbeat bills, which ban abortions once the fetal heartbeat is detected around six to eight weeks. Utah and Arkansas limit the procedure to the middle of the second trimester. So whilst this is about Alabama, it's also about the start of something where the domino effect could lead to a reversal of women's rights across America. I need hardly explain why this is such devastating news for women. It will impact poor women most significantly because poverty is the number one predicated to abortions. It also affects minority women more significantly as the majority of women who seek abortions are women of colour. How will this affect women's mental health, forced to carry and raise children that they are not equipped to have or to raise? How will this affect the social and psychological identity of those children, many of whom will undoubtedly be placed in care? Who will be plugging the inevitable financial shortfall in the foster and care system from the increase in children? And of course, the disability sector, as plenty more children with disabilities will be born. Who will be funding the inevitable decline in women's mental health? Alabama is currently 41st in America's healthcare rankings. So it hardly looks rosy on that front.
2: Like every woman I know, I spent so much of last week in a state of Fury and couldn't stop thinking about those 25 men. Trump himself has flip-flopped on the issue. He claimed he was pro-choice and then in March 2016 as a Republican presidential candidate he confirmed in response to an interviewer's question so there has to be some form of punishment for the woman Yes there has to be some form. Days later he evaded those comments in an interview with New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd. She wrote given his draconian comments sending women back to back alleys I had to ask when he was a swinging bachelor in Manhattan was he ever involved with anyone who had an abortion? Trump's response such an interesting question so what's your next question? On Saturday, he clarified, I'm very strongly pro-life with the three exceptions, rape, incest and protecting the life of the mother. The same position taken by Ronald Reagan. Although, of course, the former of those two exceptions have not made it into the new Alabama law.
1: Last Sunday, three major Alabama newspapers devoted their Sunday editions to letters from women across the state. The Birmingham News, the Huntsville Times and the Mobile Press Register filled their Sunday pages with 200 essays from Alabama women of various backgrounds, ages and political leanings. The essays are also available as a package online under the title It's Time to Hear Alabama's Women. We'll link to that in the show notes. Though the state was the talk of the nation last week, wrote Alabama Media Group's Vice President Kellyanne Scott in an introduction to the series, missing from many of those conversations were the voices of women from this state. The essays included these chilling
2: words from teenager Isabel Hope. I don't feel safe walking alone ever. How am I supposed to feel knowing that if something were to happen, I would have no options?
1: Abortion is a nuanced issue but it is not an issue that I sit on the fence about and nor will I feel even an iota of temptation to be anything other than furious and voluble on this issue. I have not had an abortion but that does not mean that I do not fiercely support the choice of any single woman who is not capable of bringing a child into this world to have one. Until women have autonomy over their bodies we do not live in an equal society. We may see Christine Blasey Ford being given a voice to speak out about her sexual assault from Brett Kavanaugh but he was still installed in the Supreme Court and I don't think that Me Too and the increase in women's voices is unconnected to the ban in Alabama there are many men who do not want women to be equal and what better way to restrict their power and agency than with a bill like this. It is the most biblical method of controlling a woman's freedom. What angers me the most is that people in favour of banning abortion are called pro-life. They are not pro-life, in my opinion, because to be pro-life would be to be invested in the life of both the baby and and the woman. What they are, said Janice Turner in her Times column, is pro-cellular life. Protect the unborn, but the born can go to hell, she writes. In the anti-abortion camp, a woman barely counts as a human. It's like she's seen as just this host body. If male politicians could get pregnant, there would be as many planned parenthood clinics as there are post offices, tweeted everyone's favourite congresswoman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The US itself is not exactly united on the issue. In a
2: 2018 poll, 59% said that abortion should be legal in all or most cases, but 37% thought it should be illegal in all or most cases. Abortion has always been a flammable topic in the US, most famously attributed to evangelical Christians or what's colloquially known as the Bible Belt, a swathe of states
1: which stretches from Texas to North Carolina. The abortion ban won't just affect women who have abortions but women who have miscarriages too because healthcare providers cannot actually tell whether someone is having a natural miscarriage or an induced miscarriage. They will have to interrogate them thoroughly about their pregnancy and if there are language barriers then it could only take one faltered word for you to be a suspect in a criminalised abortion. Imagine working there as a midwife or a doctor. Medical professionals forced to become detectives The author and midwife, Clemmie
2: Hooper, who has a very popular Instagram account, posted a photo on Instagram which said, abortion is healthcare, and I was so, so shocked at some of the vile and ignorant comments underneath the post. Supposedly pro-life women who lambasted her for supporting a woman's right to access abortion, many of whom took particular umbrage with it because Clemmie is a mother of four and because she,
1: her job, her profession is bringing life into the world. I'm a mother and I feel more passionately about abortion than I ever have because I know what it takes to grow, birth and raise a child and that was doing it when I really wanted that child. Mm, doing exactly. that when you don't want that child, when you don't feel able, must be one of the very worst feelings in the world.
2: The perfectly obvious fact is mothering and caring about children is not in opposition to abortion totally in fact it's very much a part of being invested in the notion of life bringing life into the world and raising happy and healthy children it's telling that as you say Pandora nearly every woman I know who's had a baby and is now caring for a baby and understanding the impact of becoming a parent has said they've become even more pro-choice than they were before having a child is one of the most enormous decisions a human can make and this fucking faux moralistic simplification from the side of anti-pro-choice is just so hard to engage with calmly i think
1: and and to caveat i understand that some people would never want to procure an abortion themselves you know that if they were to get pregnant they would never want to end the life of that fetus of course what is so terrifying about laws like this is it doesn't allow people that agency it's making decisions on behalf of every single woman so you have to separate personal choice from political because this is political this is not personal and also
2: i think what We have to understand in these conversations is that being deeply invested in this fundamental freedom for women does not mean taking the option of abortion flippantly
1: or lightly. Legalising abortion does not lead to a surge in women getting abortions. Legalised abortion leads to a surge of women getting like healthy legal abortions not dangerous abortions in backstreet alleys it's not like encouraging women to get abortions because people don't seek abortions as dolly says flippantly this isn't something that you just do like you're buying a fucking sandwich when i posted this news on twitter a lot of people responded about northern ireland i saw the issue as different because alabama is a new law whereas the rule in Northern Ireland is a historical one that I believe, like in Ireland last year, will be revoked. But on further reading, I can see that I was wrong to assume that it's somehow not as urgent, because in many ways it's actually stricter than the Alabama law. Alabama would lock up the doctor who performed an abortion, but it wouldn't jail the woman, whereas in Northern Ireland, under the 1861 Act, that's how old it is, this is the case. And as Janice Turner wrote in The Times, this isn't some dormant law. A mother in Northern Ireland was recently charged for acquiring abortion pills for her teenage daughter we are she writes ignoring our own alabama
2: a northern irish listener wrote into us when the news from alabama broke she writes there is an assumption that the northern irish laws will be revoked soon and it is this flippancy that creates inaction and stalls progression for the 28 northern irish women who travel every day for abortion care that is currently illegal in all cases in the north Yes, the restricting of abortion laws is terrifying. Yes, it is like the beginning of The Handmaid's Tale. But what we need is not outraged tweets and Instagram posts on women's rights, but British citizens demanding actual change. Northern Ireland has not had a sitting government for two years now, and the DUP headed by Arlene Foster are a party who are probably dancing around their offices right now due to the passing of such laws in Alabama. This is a party who your sitting government are in alliance with who Theresa May signed a deal with and who your government currently relies on So channel outrage by letting them know exactly what you think Contact and support London Irish abortion rights campaign and fight for your fellow citizens who are already under Alabama-esque laws I write this as an Irish woman who has travelled to the UK for care who grew up in a country with no respect for women's bodily autonomy and who bled on an airplane seat in the hope no woman should ever repeat that journey Thank you so much for that
1: letter. Our conversation is
2: so much better for its edition. Northern Irish journalist Elizabeth Nelson wrote for The Guardian on the subject. Because abortion is freedom to whoever needs it, there is no such thing as a more extreme abortion law. An abortion denied to an asylum seeker in Ireland without the papers to travel and whose pregnancy has gone beyond 12 weeks is as extreme as the mother in Alabama who has two children and for whom a third could push her into poverty the university student whose birth control failed and who is denied an abortion because the embryo already has a heartbeat will find the law as extreme as a rape victim who cannot access healthcare to help her to take her life back the denial of abortion to someone who needs one is in itself extreme it's not about when someone ends a pregnancy or why it is about controlling women's bodies and choices in life it is punishment anyone who's lived in a place without free, safe and legal abortion can tell you this in Northern Ireland, our hearts break for Alabama because we know what's coming. Threats, prosecutions, seizure of safe but illegal abortion pills, shame, families and friends turning each other into the authorities, fear. I think this point about abortion being freedom, a human right, regardless of a tier system of our perceived severity factors, is really important to remember in this particular conversation there were a lot of powerful images that were circulating in the wake of this news and one that i found particularly arresting was an image of a pie chart titled reasons why women have abortions and every section of the pie chart says none of your business
1: i think that's a really interesting point to raise i was just thinking while you were talking there and i definitely do feel um, myself getting more outraged and saddened by the idea of someone being pregnant through rape or incest than someone Becoming accidentally pregnant in a less violent scenario. Um, As you say, the idea of kind of reducing it to a tier system of perceived severity factors. Isn't very helpful and perhaps takes away from the conversation. I, I, I can't deny, and I'm sure a lot of people will feel that there are instances where your heart breaks. Particularly, I of think course. hearing of anyone being right. pregnant through rape. But ultimately, it is an it's an extreme law, as you say. Mm-hmm. However, it's parlayed, and also we need to be careful. and I remember when we were discussing the um, revoking the law on abortion in Ireland last year on on the Hilo, low, uh, there was a lot of kind of tweets going around with people saying, you know. It, when people are saying well abortion isn't just about you know a girl who got drunk and shagged someone and now doesn't want a baby because she's 19 like those women count too Mm -hmm. um you know we're doing we're sort of succumbing to that same sense of division and moralizing when we start picking out which circumstance is more deserving of an abortion uh, than another with human rights it's fundamental it's a right or it isn't yeah, and I, think, and I think that that was a really important point that you made and that Elizabeth Nelson made for The Guardian. We can't do anything about Alabama except to carry on making a noise about it, but we can focus on our own Alabama Northern Ireland. There has been a surge in pressure on Westminster to abolish the 1861 Act in the wake of the Alabama ruling, and a campaign calling on pro-choice supporters to email their MPs to demand action has seen 200 emails sent to politicians every hour since its launch. The hashtag now for NowForNI campaign which is being organized by the british pregnancy advisory service bpas encourages women to email their local mp the email campaign was launched at midday on wednesday and had clocked up 12,000 emails by friday evening it's such an easy thing to do to email your local mp and i genuinely never think to do it and i'm sure i'm not alone in that I'm going to be doing that today and I'll be sharing that across my social media for others to do the same. I know we said earlier that this sort of idea of just posting on social media doesn't do anything, but sometimes I think it can. And I Mm. think in this case, actually, that pressure on um, the government and on Theresa May to address this with the DUP, um, I think will be really fundamental, actually
2: another option to
1: take action is to donate to the
2: abortion support network which provides financial assistance and accommodation to people traveling from northern ireland malta gibraltar and the isle of man to access legal abortion the hilo has just made a donation and we will put the link in the show notes if you would like to show your support to women whose reproductive rights are not their rights at all
1: Thank you very much for listening to The Hilo. You can rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people find us and boosts us in the charts. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com or tweet us at The Hilo Show. Bye-bye. Bye.